Hi, I'm David Crabb, and welcome to Stories in Session, a show devoted to the art and craft of contemporary storytelling. What we're going to do here is explore storytelling from all angles, topics, and genres. We're going to hear some of the best stories from live shows across the nation, and we're going to sit down and talk with the experts and amateurs who told them. I'm David Crabb, and stories are now in session. In this episode, we're going to be talking with storyteller Aaron Wolf about anxiety. The shoe's going to drop, right? Like, it's going to be 7,000 pounds, and it's going to fall on my head over and over again. And we're going to hear a great story, which he performed at the Story Collider. I was desperately hoping that inside was this, like, infinity coursing through me, but all I knew was this hard exterior that I had built. I'm David Crabb, and this is Stories in Session. A lot of people say that storytellers are naturally anxious people. Like, who else would stand on stage deliberating about soured relationships and weird family stuff and their looming mortality besides someone who was already just absolutely wrought with stress and agita? A lot of people uh, go so far as to say they think many storytellers use the platform as therapy, uh, which is something that we'll dig deeper into in another episode. But for me, being an anxious person in relation to becoming a storyteller has been kind of like a let's make lemonade experience, you know, because now when I'm stuck on an elevator with a psychotic homophobe or having a panic attack inside an MRI machine or struggling to pull a lodged uh, turd from my dog's behind in front of a crowded city bus, I can just sigh and think, you know, this is going to make a great story. Now, rising action or raising stakes, uh, some folks call it, in the middle of a story is a necessary thing when building a compelling narrative. And compounding stress or anxiety can be a great way to do that. Uh, Not only can it make for an engaging story, but to address some of those people who think that some tellers use the stage as therapy, it can feel kind of good. I decided that if I wanted to talk about this aspect of storytelling, I should go to Aaron Wolf. Um, Not only is Aaron a superbly gifted storyteller, he's also one of the nicest guys I've ever met, and I, I mean that. But really, the reason I wanted to talk to Aaron was due to his masterful skill at capturing anxiety in his stories. Um, He has this keen ability to manifest moments of stress and palpable fear in a way that is so in that moment. It's very funny, and most importantly, it's completely relatable. You tell a lot of stories, and I feel like a part of watching you tell a story on stage is that I can feel your anxiety. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of your stories have to do with some anxiety about a looming prospect. And, and, and you telegraph that very well. Why do you feel like you do that? Mostly the answer to your question is that I feel that all the time, mm-hmm. that there's this sort of impending, um, the shoe's going to drop, right? Like mm-hmm. the shoe's going to drop, it's going to be 7,000 pounds and it's going to fall on my head over and over again, any minute. Um, which is, I think, just like general description of what anxiety is. Yeah. Um, I was sitting outside the bell house with a bunch of storytellers one night and um, we were all talking about like what... Um, our engines are. Someone said, I think all storytellers have an engine and it drives their entire body of work. Like you can find the thesis that David Crabb is working on through his entire work and it's the engine that's like pushing him through this whole thing. And we were kind of going around the circle, like what do you think your engine is or whatever. So uh, someone asked me what my engine was and I said, "Um, it's 
the feeling of sitting down at the middle school lunch table and somebody being like, oh yeah, yeah, come over, sit down here. And then you sit down and like unpack your shitty lunch with like your, you know, like homemade hummus on like whole wheat bread and they all have like bologna and shit. And, and like, they're like, they watch you do this whole elaborate thing where you're like, I'm part of the gang. And then every single one of them turns to you suddenly and says, what the fuck are you doing at this table? This is for the cool kids. Get the fuck out of here. Which, like, I feel like it happened over and over again to me as a little kid in many different ways. And that's always what I'm trying to, like, explore is, is like, everything seems really good, but someone's about to point out that you're sitting at the cool kids' table and you have a shitty sandwich while they have bologna. By the way, at any moment, you might say, like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be at this podcast. That's the... <laughs> Why are you here? Mike right. Daisy is right. coming. That's right. That's right. Look, what's funny is that somebody else immediately after that, in that conversation outside of the Bell House, mm-hmm. somebody immediately said, that's everybody's engine, dude. Yeah. And um, which I was like, don't take this away from me. Like, what, <laughs> what the fuck? Um, I found my engine. And so why do I tell stories about that? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the offshoots of being anxious about things is that you don't tend to do too many wild things. So like, I don't have those stories of like, I was hitchhiking across the Rio Grande with yeah. 10 <laughs> migrant workers and a machete. Like, I don't have those stories. I have like, I was thinking a lot by myself about this one problem. <laughs> and I was thinking so much the other day about how terrifying it would be to right. hitchhike That's right. across. That's the- right. And then my wife made me hitchhike. That's usually how the, the story ends. Yes. But um, I don't have too many... Um, situations in which like external conflict has like entered into my world because mm-hmm. for the most part it's my perception of the world as it is. My perception of the world as it is is inherently flawed. Therefore, stories come from my experience of my own um, kind of feedback loop of all of the things that are going to go bad. I really appreciate when a storyteller can sort of make me understand that, you know, this is a trait of mine, here it is in action, and let me tell you about why it's so. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in the story we're about to hear from you, uh, from the story Collider, I had that sensation over and over again. Talk a little bit uh, before we listen to this story um, about the show it was for, the story Collider, Mm -hmm. and what was your goal in putting it together? The Story Collider does stories about science, and I had I really wanted to be on storytelling shows. So the theme of the night was science fiction, and I I just I love science fiction. I'm a complete freak for it, and it occupied this very very specific part of my development. Um, and so the story is ultimately like about that, like right about uh, being a nerd and kind of tying um, science fiction geekdom to the very real science that I started to learn about as an adult that um, that really changed the way I thought about the universe and, by extension, myself. Here is Saving Hubble, Saving Aaron from the Story Collider. You know that scene in Annie Hall when the like 10-year-old Alvy Singer turns to a psychiatrist who's just asked him why he's depressed and Alvy Singer says because the universe is expanding and his mom says, "Why is that your business?" <laughs> I could totally relate at at 10 years old. 
Um, when I was 10, it was fourth grade, my dad got a VCR and he rented The Right Stuff. And it was the first time I watched The Right Stuff and I was just blown away. I was so into it. Like, astronauts were so cool. They were these cowboys that rode fast airplanes and strapped themselves to bullets and like went to outer space and they were so awesome and I totally wanted to be one. And, and it was also like the first time that I saw um, a booby on screen. It's like in the striptease scene. It was my first screen booby. It was also a space booby, a science booby. So it was super exciting. Um, and I immediately wanted to become an astronaut. And up to that moment, I wanted to be a rabbi. So it was a bit of a shift. But I was okay with that kind of dilemma. And then a few months later, fourth grade, Miss Berg wheels in a trolley with a TV on it into our classroom. And we all gather around. And we're all going to watch a space shuttle liftoff. It's going to be my first space shuttle liftoff. I'm super excited. But not only is it going to be my first space shuttle liftoff, it's a very special space shuttle liftoff because on the space shuttle is going to be a teacher, which is very exciting because one of these like civilians, like one of us, is going to get elevated to this mythic status of astronaut. And 72 seconds later, we all watched the Space Shuttle Challenger burst into flames and then explode. And I actually don't remember at all what happened after that. I do remember a few weeks later starting to feel the sense of betrayal. And actually, I think that's what America kind of felt. Um, remember all those terrible jokes about like NASA meeting Need Another Seven Astronauts and Krista McAuliffe had dandruff. That's why her head and shoulder were all over the beach. Um, I think that was America kind of rebelling against NASA. NASA had promised us this life-altering moment in which we were going to become transported by proxy of Krista McAuliffe and suddenly one of us was blown up. Fuck science, said America, and fuck science, said Aaron. And then a few months later, double fuck science, said Aaron, because a few months later, my parents went down to Bogota, Colombia, to adopt my baby brother, Jesse, which was cool. That was like the right stuff moment. Like it was unknowable and strange and kind of like exotic, and I was really into it. And then a few months after that, when Jesse wasn't rolling over or sitting up or doing the things that other little babies do, I got to meet a real-life scientist, a neurologist, and the neurologist told me all about the brain and neurons and what cerebral palsy was. And boom goes the challenger again. But this time, I do remember what happened. What happened was I got very sad, and then I got very angry, and then I started looking for a way out, a way to start, you know, to kind of hide and get away from this confusing reality. And I found it. I found it in Jewish Communist Summer Day Camp. So, uh, sleepaway Camp. <laughs> because at, at Jewish Communist Summer Sleepaway Camp, what you're exposed to, of course, is science fiction. King Nerd of the Indoor Kids took me aside and showed me Star Wars for the first time, and I was completely hooked. And I know there's like 10 people here that are like, Star Wars is like full of magic, and there's like sword play, and there's bears with crossbows. It's clearly a fantasy. Uh, and I know that science fiction and fantasy are completely different. And I know that never the twain shall meet. However, there were spaceships and lasers and the seed was planted. And that fall I got home and my dad took me to a bookstore and I went out and picked out some books. King Nerd of the Indoor Kids had taught me about the Hugo and Nebula Award, which were these, these awards given to books. And I chose two books that had awesome covers and both won the Hugo and Nebula Award. And then I chose a third book that had a really awesome cover, but it had only won one. But I'm not that much of a completist, so I said, fuck it, I'll buy it anyway. And those three books were... Starship Troopers, Ender's Game, and the third one was Eon by a guy named Greg Bear. I, mean, I, I, just, I love those books. I absolutely adore those books. I read them over and over again. I'd read them on my walk home from school. Like As I got closer and closer to my house, I'd start slowing down. Like I'd read a page, 
take a step, read a page, take a step, like anything to prolong the fantasy of these books and prolong the delay to the real world. I, I blew right past the fascist allegory of Starship Troopers. I was like, fuck yeah, let's 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 colonize the aliens and kill them and you should totally have to be a soldier to be a citizen. Like, that makes total sense. Uh, and... Uh, Ender's game while well, Ender Wigan he's an oversmart 12 year old that lives like the weight of the universe is on his shoulders I could relate uh, and the fact that Ender Wigan could kick ass because that, that's pretty cool like maybe I could kick ass too I, I could not kick ass and then, and then Eon Eon was the one that really set me over the edge so the plot of Eon is that it's the year 2005 and a potato shaped asteroid appears in low earth orbit out of nowhere and the world space agencies send their astronauts to land on the potato and they immediately discover that it's hollow um, and they go inside of it, and not only is it hollow, but it's really big on the inside. In fact, it's way bigger than it is on the outside. In fact, on the outside, it's this asteroid shell thing, and on the inside is infinity. Literally, it goes on and on and on forever. And if that's not what I was hoping was going on inside of me, I don't know what was. I was desperately hoping that inside was this like infinity coursing through me. But all I knew was this hard exterior that I had built over the past six, seven years. So science fiction was integral to my life. It was integral to how I understood the universe and it was integral to how I understood myself. And then it became part of my sex life. <laughs> so... Uh, I was 15. She was two years older than me. She was kind of like worldly and exciting, and I wasn't quite sure about her. But I, I really liked her, and I really wanted to impress her. And, and her parents went out of town, and we went up to her, her, her attic room, and she had a VCR in her room, which I thought was wild. And uh, we watched Dune. Um, I love the book Dune, but I really love the movie Dune. And I wasn't sure how she felt about the movie, but I was like, you know, this, this is going to be cool. I'm going like to show her that I'm like really cool, too. And, and then uh, they landed on uh, the planet Giddy Prime, and the Mentat Peter DeVries is on his way to meet the Baron Harkonnen, and I recite alongside, I can't help myself, I recite alongside him, it is by will alone, I set my mind in motion, it is by the juice of the sapphire, the thoughts acquire speed, the lips acquire stain, the stain becomes rewarding, it is by will alone, I set my mind in motion, the Mentat's Creed, if you don't know. And she looked at me and said, take your clothes off. <laughs> Dude got me a blowjob, there was no way that I was going back to the real world after that. Um, but... But that presented a bit of a paradox because sci-fi geeks love paradoxes. And so the paradox was the more I focused on this fantasy of science fiction, the more I like started really dwelling in that future that it promised. Because the great thing about science fiction is that it's all about to happen. You know, like the best science fiction is like two years from now, some crazy shit is going to occur. And you're like, totally. And the more that I started dwelling in that place and like believing in that place, the more it felt real. And the more I only wanted to kind of dwell in that place. But the paradox was the more I wanted to dwell there, the sadder I got. Because if like jetpacks and like alien encounters are all like just about to happen, then what about all the other stuff that's just about to happen? Like becoming a musician or becoming a writer or being, you know, a well-adjusted, emotionally mature adult. All of that is supposed to just about to happen. But I'm not delusional. I know that's science fiction. It's not going to happen for me. So I got very depressed and then I became a video editor. <laughs> 
in that order. I started working for uh, extreme sports television, which was terrible. And after a, after a while, I was, I was introduced to a guy. Uh, I was recommended to him. He was making a film about the Hubble Space Telescope called Saving Hubble, a guy named David Gaines. And we, we met over a, a beer at a Korean restaurant, and I told him about Mrs. Berg's fourth grade class, and I told him about space boobies and the right stuff. And I left out the part about like being freaked out by science and how it kept ruining my life. But I was like, you know, this is going to be exciting for me. I'm going to ease back into the world of science. And he liked me, and I liked him, and uh, I got the job. And the first thing you do when you're a film editor on a new job is you go into a room by yourself and you put on headphones and you listen and you watch hundreds and hundreds of hours of raw footage. Just hundreds, like every um and let me start again and all of that stuff, you just watch and you just wait for that little kernel of something and you just prime yourself to like hear the one thing that you're going to be like, that's the thing I need to put in the film. I had all of these interviews. I had these space geeks. I had journalists and I had astronauts. And I watched all those interviews because there was like a, a single folder of all the physicists. And I was like, I'm going to delay that as long as I possibly can. Because I was feeling good. I had a new job. I was like really into it. And so I watched everything. And then it came time to watch the physicists. And the first interview I watched, he explains to me something called the Hubble constant, which I'll explain to you. Edwin Hubble, who the telescope is named after, was the first astronomer to notice, or to observe rather, that the universe is expanding. Remember Alvy Singer and Annie Hall? The universe is expanding. Alvy did have a reason to be depressed. He was right. It's expanding. But they put the Hubble telescope outside of the atmosphere to observe how fast it was expanding. And the first thing that they discovered was that it's expanding faster than it should. We know how much energy was created in the Big Bang. And the Big Bang happened and started pushing the universe outwards. And so that should be a fixed amount of energy that's being exerted on the universe. It should expand at a certain rate. But it's expanding faster than that. And then they discovered not only is it expanding faster than that, it's accelerating so I started doing deep breaths in this room, like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay, Aaron, it's going to be okay. And then he says, so the, this physicist says, but we don't like things to be unexplained. So what we've discovered is that there's this thing called dark energy, and dark energy is 70% of all the energy in the entire universe. All the universe is made up of 70%, this unknowable thing called dark energy, and that's what's making everything expand. So, great. Okay, I'm freaking out in this room. <laughs> Because, like, the most prevalent thing in the universe is something that we don't know why it is, what it is, except we know it's there and it's, like, here. (laughs) And then the next interview I watch is equally terrifying to me. This guy gets up in front of the camera and he starts talking about this thing called the ultra-deep field exposure. And so what happened was George W. Bush wanted to cancel the Hubble Space Telescope because he said there wasn't any science really left to be learned from it. And this, well, yeah, he was this very, very intelligent man. Uh, and um, so the head of the Space Telescope Sciences Institute decides he's going to do this Hail Mary pass. He's going to prove to George W. Bush and to America and by extension the world that there's tons to still be learned. And the way he does this is he takes all of his time that's allocated to him as the head of the Space Telescope Sciences Institute And he decides he's going to point it not at something that anybody's ever observed before, but the opposite. He's going to point it at a spot in the universe that nobody has ever observed anything before using any tool. The boringest spot in the universe is what he's going to point this thing at. Just so you get an idea of the size of the spot, if you were to hold a pencil at arm's length and close one eye, the tip of the pencil at arm's length is the size of the spot that he pointed the telescope at. And he opened up the telescope... 
And he started gathering the light in. And the longer he exposed the telescope, the further and further out he peered. And when the image came back, in the boringest spot in the universe, they found thousands upon thousands upon thousands of galaxies. And in each galaxy, millions and billions of stars. And I just about burst into tears when I heard that in that room. Because... How small could I possibly be? I mean, like, Alvy was freaking out about the universe expanding, but, like, he didn't even know how big it was. It was so big, and I was so small. And I recall then Alvy's mom saying, what business is that of yours? Well, a few days later, I'm sitting in that same small room, and I'm watching another interview, this time but this guy, Bruce Camiat, who's this amateur astronomer, a kind of proselytizer for telescopes. And he says at the end of, of this interview, kind of almost as a throwaway, he says, it is our tendency to view space as out there and us as down here, that like we're viewing it on a big TV screen. But of course, in fact, we're out there too. We're on this planet that's shuttling through the universe at unbelievable speeds, and we're part of it. It's not separate from us. We're part of it. And like a rocket, I launched out of that room in Midtown, past the atmosphere, past the Hubble Space Telescope, past the Milky Way, into the most remote reaches of the universe. And I just looked back, and I was relaxed and kind of happy. And the other thing he said was, our atoms are from dying stars. They were birthed in dying stars, and when they die... And when we die, they're going to go back to those stars. And I could not help but be in pure, amazed wonder at how much beauty and unbelievable stuff I had been missing because I was so afraid to deal with reality. And I was so afraid of science and what was in front of me. All of those fantasies were shielding me from this unbelievably beautiful idea. And not only were my fantasies being shielded, but all of the things that I really hoped and wanted for myself that I had put in the, in the place of fantasy, in that around-the-corner place, well, around-the-corner was now, and there was no sense waiting any longer. So a few weeks later, I submitted my first essay for publication, and a few weeks after that, I went to The Moth and told my first story at The Moth. And though I still require some serious alone time with science fiction, I'm totally cool with spending some time with the real world for the time being. Thanks. This was a story that you did uh, pretty early. This isn't a more recent story. No. How, how long ago was this, maybe? Uh, I, I think it's four or five years old. Four or five years, maybe, really. Maybe. Uh, it's it's like amongst the first half dozen stories I ever told. You've gotten a lot of storytelling experience under your belt since then. Mm-hmm. You've won multiple moss. Mm-hmm. Um, you produce your own uh, sports theme storytelling show, which is called uh, First Time Long Time. First Time Long Time. Um, listening back to this story now, that's four or five years old. Are there things that you would do different? Do you get anxiety listening to portions of it? <laughs> yeah, in weird ways, I do. How so? Uh, well, first, I like the, some of them. My cadence, I really don't like, but that's fine. That's about me having been anxious in the moment and like trying to really sell an idea, you know. Um, and then I feel anxious about like, oh man, 
listen to that voice. He was like so excited and he was just telling his story and it's a little sloppy and um, sometimes raw and really dense. I was really surprised listening back to it, like how dense the story is. Um, There's some big ideas in it. Yeah. And like a lot of ideas. Like Mm -hmm. that was, that's the story of a person who's just like pushing Pushing, 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 pushing. Like, how much can I get in? How how many ideas? Like, I remember working up that story and, like, the timer just being like, okay, I just got to talk faster. Aaron and I also uh, are both storytelling teachers. We both work uh, sometimes with high school students. And I really wanted to ask Aaron, in terms of anxiety and distance, what is it like for him dealing with, well, really some of the most anxious people around, 16-year-olds? It's awesome. I love it. But I mean, also because like with the years of hindsight, right, mm-hmm. you can make a joke about it. Mm-hmm. But I actually really love how earnestly like big these things are to the to the high school kids, right? Like it's such a big deal. The guy looked at me or the girl talked to me or like I wore the wrong sweater to school for like two weeks in a row. Like it is so huge. And um, in retrospect, we can make jokes about it and we can kind of like play it up or play it down however we want. Right. In the end of the day, like we're making jokes about it because we're like a little bit embarrassed about how big it feels. But it, it felt really big then. Like I I've never told this story um, on stage about, uh, this like date that I went on with, um, with this girl, Sarah, that I was so in love with. And we went on a double date and, uh, it was just calling her. Like it was like yeah. two days of buildup and just stomach pain. And, and I had to have mm. my friend Amit dial the phone and he had to be in the room with me. You and I like, have, like, I remember that you had to have everything set up yeah. in the room that you might need. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. two 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 buttons away from finishing her his her number and like his dad walks in the room. And I'm like, oh my god, I can't do it. And like hung up the phone, like sweating from unbelievable places. Like it was just so it was so crazy. That's the thing about being like in grade school or in middle school or in high school. Like the fantasy is so much bigger than the reality. That's a luxury. Like that's a luxury to have those fantasies. And that's an incredible wealth of comedy, at least in storytelling, right? Like you can look back at how deep the fantasy ran and and just, just draw over and over and over again from it. Yeah. Aaron Wolf, thank you so much uh, for coming. And I don't want you to have any more uh, anxiety. Oh, thank you. Uh, I promise you I will. Uh, good, as long <laughs> as there's more stories. Um, thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. On this episode, you heard Aaron Wolf's Saving Hubble, Saving Aaron, which he performed at The Story Collider, a night of science stories in Boston and New York City. Thank you so much to Aaron Wolf. Our theme song is by the band Mono Gold. The show was produced by me, David Crabb, Morgan Jones, Rachel Hamburg, Jesse Rogala, and Tyler Dorson. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.
Hey there, yarn spinners and uh, fat chewers. Made me feel gross. If you want to contribute to the conversation, find us on Twitter at SIS underscore show and on Instagram at Stories in Session. That's at Stories in Session. No gaps, no spaces, no underscores. Are all the letters just smashed together like bad grammar. Stories in Session. Uh, we're on Facebook, too, in the form of a page that is hopefully not a hacking Russian bot. And if you're interested in learning storytelling in person or online with yours truly, go to www.crablab.com. That's with two Bs and two Bs. Crabba, Bye-bye with two Bs.